Hello everyone, welcome to the Shiloh podcast. This is an edited recording of a webinar held in April, part of the AHRC-funded project Abuse in Religious Contexts. We held one in February on the intersections of power. The one you're about to hear now is about the role of scripture in those contexts. As a journalist with a background in radio production, I've learned to be pretty ruthless in the editing of audio. Most programmes I make are under 30 minutes, just sometimes 40. When I moved into making podcasts, I welcomed the flexibility on timing, but still hold to the general principle that shorter is better. But with this webinar, I decided it was really important to keep those extra minutes, and I only mainly edited for reasons of confidentiality. Three practitioners and scholars, Dr. Ramanara Chowdhury, Dr. Holly Morse and Professor Johanna Stiebert, presented their work. But we also heard powerful contributions from some other participants. Some of them shared difficult stories and issues. I'd like to thank them for their willingness to share and to remind you that the project has an information resource about available support that you can access if you need to. The email is airs, A-I-R-S, at kent.ac.uk. We begin by hearing from Ramanara Chowdhury. So a little bit about myself. I've been researching into domestic violence and abuse for quite a while now. I have a practitioner background in that area as well. Uh, I'm a chartered psychologist. Um, so through that work, I've always been aware in terms of the role of religion potentially um, in exacerbating abuse and how it can be how it can be used for coercive and controlled purposes. Um, I was then introduced to Imam Farouk Mullah, who I hope might be here today. Um, and he was actually the driving force behind looking at abuse within faith institutions. Um, so together with him and a couple of colleagues at Nottingham Trent University, we embarked on a project looking at the impact of abuse within a faith uh, institutional context and abuse carried out by those who hold positions of religious authority. So that's something that's still an ongoing piece of work. Um, extending off that, we've also developed a project with a group up in uh, Scotland called Sacred, and I believe Maria from the group is here today as well, um, and where we're exploring the impact again, looking at understanding uh, the nature of abuse in Scottish Muslim communities, understand the impact with a view for interventions and prevention as well. So, um, Romano, this particular webinar is about the use and abuse of scripture in justifying violence or in challenging it. And I just wonder how much of a discussion there is in British Muslim communities around this. So I think there's a bit of a difference. You've got what's happening at the grassroots, then you've got what's going on in academia and maybe amongst the scholars. Certainly amongst the scholars, I know there have been discussions. I don't know how fruitful they've been, but there have been discussions that have happened. At the grassroots, what I've tended to see is actually scripture doesn't really come into it. It's more about the patriarchal uh, sort of nature of societies, what the cultural normative values are, and the, the misapplication of those kind of values and people absorbing them, thinking that they are part of the faith tradition, but actually they're part of the cultural normative practices because they've just been passed down from generation to generation and absorbed and assumed to be part of the faith. Actually, people are now practicing those things, thinking this is part of my faith. These are things we need to tolerate and um, uh, we can't challenge because it's part of my faith. But actually, it's got a completely different foundation. So there's kind of two parallel things, I would say, going on. 
At the same time, I think there's a group of sort of researchers and activists coming forward, primarily because they've spoken to survivors. They know the impact, they know how damaging it is. And so they want to see a change on the ground. And I think that's where the biggest drive is coming from. Is there a conversation that is beginning? It seems to me it's there certainly it's a conversation that needs to be had between those parallel uh, movements. Absolutely. Um, I think it's a very delicate area there. So again, I was reflecting on this. One of my, when I started my PhD, I was in uh, presenting a paper and <laughs> it, was, it was such an interesting experience. So there was a non-Muslim member of the audience, um, more senior than myself, who kind of um, got up at the end and was saying, well, your religion allows this. It allows violence against women. So I had that experience on the one hand. And then on the other hand, when I was trying to engage with imams on this topic, I was asked to basically verify that I, must, I wasn't a man-hating feminist. Mm. So yes, these conversations need to be had, but there's lots of dynamics that need to be navigated in that process as well. So it can be really challenging, as I'm sure you all know, actually. <laughs> And I mean, I was asking you particularly about a, a British Muslim context, but I, I wonder whether the scriptures are used in different ways in other contexts. Whether you're whether you're aware of that, and and because it's an international world and an international community, how you um, broker some of those discussions that perhaps need to be had. Yeah, so I think internationally, where you've got communities that speak Arabic, I think potentially in those communities, there's more of those discussions happening. Um, where scripture is used more within the abuse, the, the actual process of the abuse itself. I know um, uh, Dr. Sandra Pertek has done some work in terms of international work in this area, and this idea they're actually in communities where they do speak Arabic, potentially the scripture is more prominent there. Um, again, I think it's the, the cultural normative values maybe play a role as well, but also how prominent scripture actually is in the day-to-day -day life of everyday people. So do people look to the scriptures to validate um, their behaviour, you know, whether it is abusive or um, or challenging abuse? I mean, is that something that they would they would want to do? And where would they look? I mean, can you give me an example of, a, you know, a, a text or a teaching that they might sort of look to? Yeah. So the most common one that has been used in, again, this is in the academic field, is um, chapter four, verse 34 of the Quran. Um, and there's a certain phrase in there which uses the word strike, basically. There's a process of like conflict resolution and it goes through three different steps. And the last step is basically, if, if that doesn't work, then you can so-called strike your, your um, partner. However, there's a lot of contention about this word itself that actually doesn't mean strike. One theologian, he's put forward that there's 17 different narrations in terms of what that word could actually be, 17 different translations, sorry. Um, and then there's the whole idea of hermeneutics and the field of interpretation as well. So actually, you have to look at how interpretation was done contextually as well. And a lot of that tended to be based on what was happening in society at that time. Um, so a lot of the translations we currently have are very patriarchal in nature. There's, there's um, work done by um, Zahra Ayubi and Dr. Chowdhury. There's someone else as well, um, uh, going into this whole discussion of the whole patriarchal nature of societies and how that's in, uh, influenced on interpretation. Now, in terms of people using that to justify their behaviours, in my research, I haven't seen it. 
I think internationally it does exist, again, mainly in communities where they speak Arabic. What I have found is that people are actually turning to the scripture to demonstrate that abuse is not allowed. And that's where they're utilizing actual verses. But in, in the case of the British context, I've, I've not seen it being used that much, to be honest. What about the, um, the perception or, or the position of scholars in, in society? We've talked about these two parallel strands, the sort of the, maybe the deference given to religious leaders and, and where authority comes from in terms of both the, the reading of scriptures, the challenging of them, the reinterpretation of them. How easy is it to sort of challenge those in authority? So it can be really, really complicated and really difficult. Um, there tends to be um, this kind of hierarchy in terms of scholar, scholars, um, this idea that scholars are seen as slightly put on a pedestal. The idea that you can't really challenge scholars because they've, they've studied at the end of the day. They know how to read the text. They know how to interpret it. If you've not got that background, then how can you challenge that knowledge when you don't have the same knowledge base? Then there's this idea of actually those. So this is from the tradition itself, this idea that if you have knowledge of the text, if you have knowledge of theology, then that is deemed as uh, something prestigious. So it does give you an honoured status. Um, so at a sort of community level, at the grassroots level, you will see that scholars will be put on the pedestal. Um, where sort of mediation, in-house mediation fails, where mediation at the family level fails, scholars will be the default position that people go to for advice and support, because at the end of the day, they want to ensure that what they're doing, the decisions they're making are in line with their faith. So if you then can't challenge that system, and then you have individuals turning around and saying, you have to put up with this, you have to remain in this relationship, you have to exercise patience, that becomes really difficult. But at the same time, I have seen sort of in the last five years, there's a an almost, I wouldn't even say a new generation of scholars, but actually a generation of scholars who are have a wider awareness and they're much more vocal and much more active. They're seeing the reality on the ground of what happens in abusive situations. So actually they're much more vocal about saying this is not acceptable from within the faith tradition itself. So I feel like internally they're, they're almost combating those previous narratives that did exist. Within my research, what I found was because there was such a huge concern in regards to that reputational damage, what was happening was that victims were being silenced. They were being told that if you go and seek support, then the only thing you're going to do is you're going to add to the existing narratives that exist, and a lot of them tend to be negative, and you're going to add, uh, add more fuel to the fire. You're going to be responsible for giving Islam a bad name. So therefore you can't speak out. And that has real implications on the ground because it will then be silent because they will feel, well, how can I speak out? How can I, how can I speak, out, speak out against Islam? How can I commit something so major? So absolutely. The other thing that is happening, so just in response to, to what was stated, um, there's, there's this idea of a reductionist approach to faith and a holistic approach to faith. So when you look at the scholarship around this, the reductionist approach is where the faith is literally stripped back to a set of rules and regulations. So the entire essence of it is literally sort of sucked out of it. And all you're left with is, this is your responsibility. You have to do this. You're not allowed to do this. You must do this. It's literally yes, no, black and white, very binary. But there's a whole sort of um, scholarly um, 
um, field of work now coming talking about the holistic approach to faith, this idea that actually we need to go back to what's the actual ethical and moral framework of the faith itself. So there's been um, all the Quranic ethics of marriage framework, which has been put forward. And then the whole sort of um, uh, thinking about Islamic epistemological um, approaches to understanding violence against women. This idea that actually, if we go back again to that ethical and moral framework, the answers are there, but it, it means arguing against those hierarchies and arguing against those individuals who do have that power and that position in society. Mm. Thank you. Um, just a couple of comments before we go on to um, our next guest. Um, Suki Kaur, I don't know if you would be, you've been nodding away there. Um, I, I um, wonder what you can bring to this. I mean, I'm just, first of all, thank you. Um, is it Ra Ramanara? I just want to make sure I pronounce that correctly. Thank you. I just so much of what you're saying is just like, yes, because as this, I mean, I'm the chair of trustees of Sikh Women's Aid. And part of our service provision is supporting victims of faith-based exploitation. That's the expertise I bring to the role. And the Sikh Punjabi community in the UK is in its infancy in unpacking just what has been allowed to be perpetrated, I would probably say, since our arrival in the UK. And kind of there's a real... And, me, I've studied scripture, not, not as a scholar or as an academic, but as my duty as a Sikh. A Sikh literally translates to student and a guru is the teacher and our our guru is scripture. So um, a lot of my years were just spent understanding. And what I then realized was that 92% of our leadership doesn't actually follow scripture they follow the interpreted version of scripture that allows them to hold their positions firm in their communities in their faith settings and we have seen abuse of power because we have a ceremony of baptism and it's where five high priests will baptize and it's in that setting we have seen victims return to perpetrators we have seen men who should absolutely know better in terms of scripture and history. There is no place for violence against women and girls. We've put out a report called From Her Kings Are Born, and we've actually discussed that within the report on the kind of scriptures that are used. And it is all around the karmic implications. So what we have is the karma philosophies routinely used to keep women either trapped in abusive situations or not seek justice against the perpetrator because the, the, i mean it's it's extreme victim blaming through the faith this you know you must have done something to him in your past life so he has come back in this life and he has to extract i mean it's absolutely disturbing there is no foundation in because in the right. sikh faith you have three main three yeah. main sources which is scripture history and the codes yeah. of conduct and there's harmony across all three, but that has not penetrated through grassroots level because we have this Godman leader structure and they provide the females access to scripture. So even right. when we're taught, it's been taught through a patriarchal lens and I'll, I'll shut up there. <laughs> well, no, there is so much to explore there. And that's another, you know, it's a whole other podcast and, you know, we, we will get to it, I hope. Um, but it's really fascinating to hear. Thank you um, so much. Um, Denise Bennett, you have a, a, a comment to make as well, which I saw in the chat box, which I, I'd like you to share. Um, yeah, so I, I'm looking at how Pentecostal ministers deal with um, domestic abuse in their own congregations. And, you know, a lot of what uh, Rahmana has said, it, 
you know, I'm, I hear the same things. And um, I, I have, I've interviewed some, some women. They are reporting that scripture is being used against them. And, you know, um, as, I, as I said, Shane Sharp, um, I think it's 2014, talked about um, religious capital and interpretive confidence. And so that's where, the, you know, people need to actually know what the scriptures say. But they also need to be able to put an alternative interpretation on it, which is an interpretation which allows them to be safe. And the thing that I, I noticed, um, so I, I interviewed women, but I've done some focus groups with ministers as well where they were given scenarios and a couple of the scenarios um women came to the, the minister with specific verses that they were finding problematic that either they were problematic for themselves they'd read something um you know god hates divorce what do you do with that if you've been divorced 10 years ago or whatever or that somebody is using um verse against them so for example in one of my scenarios a verse was used to say, you know, you, you mustn't deprive each other of sex. And the husband was saying, well, you're not allowed to say no to me and using that. And interestingly, there was a gender difference between my women ministers and my men ministers. Women ministers addressed those and, and sort of talked through um, verses and gave interpretations. And the male ministers didn't tend to, to look at the scripture at all. So somebody was going with a, with a question about scripture coming away with a different answer completely that, that wasn't what they would be addressing so scripture is what they do you know that's their job yet they were much more interested particularly the male ministers in, in getting stuck in and fixing the problem rather than actually helping the woman giving her and equipping her with an understanding that she could actually apply for herself thank you um right there will be more opportunities to um come to rahmanara with questions um later but i'm going to move on now um to dr holly morse um holly do you want to introduce yourself hi yes thank you uh, for that yeah thanks for having me today um i'm holly morse i'm a lecturer in bible gender and culture at the university of manchester um, and I'm also um, a co-director on an AHRC network project called Abusing God, Reading the Bible in the Me Too Age. Um, a large part of my work is really about reception and interpretation of biblical texts. So I've spent a lot of time working on the Genesis 2 to 3 creation story um, and thinking about how, for me, a text that really isn't about sinfulness uh, primarily or gender hierarchy in its kind of earliest contexts comes to be a text that is so sort of significant in terms of shaping the way that um, we think about gender hierarchies, the way that we think about power, uh, the way that we can also think about violence and abuse. Um, in right, so Genesis 2-3, we're context. talking about the story of Adam and Eve. And it's a very it's a very familiar story in our culture. It's read every year at the Nine Lessons of Nine Lessons and Carols at Christmas. Um, it's in our art. Um, and it's been it's, it's a text that has been interpreted completely down the ages um, by all the, the great and the good and the not so good in Christian tradition. Um, so, um, so tell us a little bit about how, well, whether you have seen sort of specific examples of the misuse of that, or whether it's a sort of more, more in the sort of creation of a culture, um, which is woman blaming. Yeah, I think it can, I think it can be both. 
Um, so, um, you know, I think that at the heart of my interest around the text is actually the creation of a culture. Um, there's a brilliant scholar called Mika Bal who talks about the double myth of Eve, that you have the myth of the of the figure of Eve in the Garden of Eden text in Genesis 2 to 3, but you also have this kind of cultural figure who is kind of responsible for shaping our ideas about what we think about women. And so, you know, I think the fact that it's a creation story that tells us something about how humanity begins is why it's so sort of influential, why it's had such a lasting impact. It in effect creates gender roles because it's a creation story. And I think because uh, the woman is created after the first human, I'm going to be careful about what I say there because you can interpret the, the first human's creation as being either genderless or uh, masculine. Um, but it's created second uh, because the woman comes out of that creature and is made for that creature, uh, that man, that human. Um, you know, there's this whole scope for thinking about hierarchy and power relationships between man and woman that is in, in effect by that story kind of embedded from the very beginning and therefore forms a model for the rest of the kind of relationships between men and women thereafter. Um, so I think that there is this kind of really significant culture that develops around that, and that becomes really prominent all the way through the history of Christianity and through Judaism as well, although they have different kinds of takes on the text theologically. But I think that, you know, the work that we've been doing uh, for the Abusing God project, one of the examples that really stood out to me about sort of thinking about how this text is used to justify violence against women was in a play that was written by Matthew Britton on behalf of Press Red, who are leading kind of a charity working to end violence against women and girls. And uh, the, the, the play Control is about um, a couple um, and it's a coercive controlling relationship. The husband is coercively controlling his, partner, his wife and you know in that text Matthew decide in that play Matthew decides to use the Garden of Eden story as part of the way that that character justifies their behavior towards their their wife um the male character justifies their part their behavior towards their wife and I think it also comes through in in other places um Helen Painter's work uh, the Bible doesn't tell me so you know one of the first issues that Helen addresses in terms of helping and equipping people to respond to coercive control in Christian context is dealing with the interpretation or perhaps misinterpretation of the Genesis story. Right. Um, and of course, there is a reading of, of, of Genesis uh, which can sort of challenge all that, isn't there? I mean, do, do you come across that among um, survivors or scholars who are working with survivors? Yeah, I think certainly those kinds of conversations are happening. And Helen's work is a, is a great example of that, where Helen will Helen has kind of addressed alternative interpretations to the Garden of Eden story, uh, where, you know, we are looking at challenging some of the sort of subsequent um, interpretations uh, that really focus on the secondary nature of women, uh, but also the kind of ultimately sinful nature of women as you know, the, the primary sinner um, taking the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and bad. But feminist scholars have been equipping us with all sorts of ways to challenge that kind of um, perspective on the text, you know, thinking about the idea that possibly the first human, the first Adam is actually a sort of a, a non-gendered creature that is only kind of brought into two genders or split once the woman is taken from the man's side. Phyllis Tribble is a perfect example of that. Sort of. I'm, I'm moving on from um, Genesis to um, your work on a prophet called Ezekiel, um, you've, in which you find really disturbing contemporary resonances between the way that text operates and victim blaming, slut shaming, revenge porn. Um, very briefly, tell us what 
those two chapters in Ezekiel are mm -hmm. and then and then tell us about the resonances that you see they might be obvious to us but actually sometimes we need our eyes opening to things yeah for sure so Ezekiel 16 and 23 are part of what sort of biblical scholars have recognized as a, a, a motif called the marriage metaphor so this is where prophets in the Hebrew Bible um, create a metaphor where God is represented as a husband and Israel is represented as a wife uh, and it's usually used when a prophet is trying to explain why Israel is suffering uh, often at the hands of a, a foreign uh, conqueror um, and um, the sinfulness uh, of the uh, city or of the of the people uh, in this metaphor is always represented as a wife's sexual sinfulness, perceived promiscuity, um, condemnation of adultery. Um, so in Ezekiel 16.23, we follow the relationship of God kind of meeting and marrying Jerusalem um, or more, you know, the, the territory more widely. And then her being accused of going after other lovers, particularly non-Israelite lovers, um, to which she is then punished by God with various different kind of really disturbing uh, punishments, including stripping, um, mutilation, uh, sort of financial um, uh, punishment. Um, and so it, uh, in my work, what I became interested in was looking at how contemporary scholars read this through the lens of domestic abuse in quite early kind of examples of feminist interpretations of these texts, and then through the lens of pornography. And as I was kind of reading around these texts, one of the things that struck me was that actually the most kind of contemporary disturbing similarity between what happens to Jerusalem as a me metaphorical woman um, and kind of culture today is the, the, um, uh, the sort of um, proliferation of revenge porn uh, as a kind of crime that's only really recently been recognized in 2015. Uh, you know, the idea that um, uh, a, a kind of acceptable response to perceived female promiscuity is to expose their bodies in explicit images. So what does it do um, for us to look at these texts be beyond horrify? Um, I mean, is, is it that we just say, well, here are two societies and they're they're not so different as we sometimes think they are. Um, do you see any sort of well, seems a bit any sort of causal relationship between what you read in texts like Ezekiel and where we are now? Um, what what's the value in in wrestling with these texts? Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the things that really strikes me is that um, you know these texts are really disturbing and. Interestingly, in, 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 a, in a large amount of scholarship on this, and I think also sort of more, more broadly in theological responses, there, there are two ways of thinking about this. One is that the response can be, well, these are just metaphors and they're from way back when, and we shouldn't really be taking them seriously as metaphors, you know, that they're, they're being used to kind of convey a message in a kind, from a kind of context and time that is very different than our own. I think that's actually really problematic because it kind of limits the fact that these texts are still part of sacred texts, part of scripture. And I think it also kind of limits the, um, the idea of actually using the text as a kind of witness um, and, and, and create, creating space to respond to the problems of violence and abuse, particularly of women. Um, so, you know, I, I have a kind of 
uh, it, that really sits uneasily with me, the idea that these are just a metaphor. And actually, I think that really drawing attention to the similarities between what we're seeing in such ancient texts and contemporary behavior should sort of help us to feel that shock that actually we're we're still part of a, a world which in some instance people want to say oh it's just a metaphor it's from way back in history actually we're still so close to that that there's that we can see these kind of similarities of behavior pattern that that should be something that might move us to action i don't know whether you or whether anyone here who works with um survivors and victims have have um engaged with those texts from from that survivor perspective um and what the value in a way is for them in seeing it, whether it's sort of in recognising their experience or um, whether there's a way in which reading those texts enables them to sort of challenge abuse. I can't, oh gosh, I mean, um, I want to say I can't believe that those texts are actually used to justify it, but I'm sure I can actually um, believe that. I don't think I'd have to go very far on Twitter to find some examples of that. Um, I, I certainly see examples of other texts being used in that way. But I just wonder whether anybody has got some sort of um, on the ground experience of working with um, Christian or Jewish group survivors who are sort of dealing with this. Um, Linda, did you put your hand up? Yes, I put my hand up because we're doing some research as part of Gordon's project. Joe Kind and myself uh, speaking with survivors about of abuse in religious contexts, speaking about their journeys of survival and what helps uh, and what makes it so hard. And it's amazingly varied, Rosie, the answer. It depends on the individual. For some people where the text has been used and abused in abuse, it's, it's so traumatic and triggering that they cannot even hear those words again. For, for others, uh, it's been very, very important to try and reclaim um, for themselves the texts and their faith. So it's, it's just a very, very varied picture that depends on the individual, I think. Um, the feast, you did put your name in but I've, uh, in the chat, but I've forgotten it, but you've just, uh, you've just added something there. Um, my name's Jill, Jill Appleton. I, um, I know Jo very well, um, who, who's just been mentioned, and she's supported me recently because I was until very recently a licensed reader with the Church of England, but I've stepped down from that role. And, and over the last few years, in, through Jo's experience and, and through my own, I've, have wanted to change the emphasis of, for example, safe flooding needs being clergy. Uh, actually making it somebody else so that was my role in my church um recently um i went through the updated training and the first part of the training in the church of england for safeguarding leads is a reflection on psalm 91 now at the same time as all this i'm actually a victim of, of clergy abuse i've been silenced by diocese who don't want to damage the reputation of a church and uh, so i'm in, i'm going through a process there but as a victim reading the Psalm 91, which to paraphrase for those of you here, basically says, if you're right with God, no harm will come to you. And I'm appalled. So as a, I'm, I, I said at the time, you know, this is a, this, this, you hear the voice of the perpetrator in this scripture. And as a victim, it's actually, it's quite interestingly, I've not been able to read the Bible since the fear of what else I might come across. It felt instantly that this was a, an attempt to take the church back, I would say 50 years in terms of their attitude 
to abuse of people, be that clergy abuse or other types of abuse, and actually focus on, well, it should all be about getting yourself right with God and focusing on that. So actually, it, it horrified me. Um, and when I'm through the stage, I want to make quite a stink about this, but it just bothers me so much that the, 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 a, a, an international institution has changed its safeguarding and starts with something that makes that actually presents victims as people who aren't right with God. Um, I'm going to move on to um, Johanna Stieber. We'll be talking about the same the same sort of stuff. But um, Johanna, do introduce yourself to us all. Oh, hi everybody! Uh, thank you very much for for the discussion so far, which has put a bit of a, a lump in my throat in places. Um, so my name is Johanna Stiebert. I teach at the University of Leeds. The textual area I research is that which is variously called the Bible or the Hebrew Bible or sometimes the Old Testament. And I've worked on topics of gender uh, for most of my career, very much like Holly. Uh, but whereas I used to focus much more on the social world, the context in which these texts were written, um, I've come much more to look uh, more recently at the social world in which these texts are received, so uh, at, at the present. I look particularly at texts uh, that feature gender-based violence and as part of that, I also co-direct a project called the Shiloh Project, which has as a subtitle, uh, Rape Culture, Religion and the Bible. And the purpose of that is uh, in part to draw some attention to the normalization of uh, sexualized violence. Most recently, I've been looking particularly at uh, intimate partner violence, uh, marriage uh, and gender-based violence in relation to that. And together with Saima Afsal, who spoke uh, just before, um, I'm, I'm writing a book on that. And I've been really interested to follow some of the conversation uh, and uh, what Suki said uh, about um, interpretation and texts. And uh, perhaps unlike Suki, if I, if I understood you correctly, um, I don't think the problem uh, is always in the interpretation and not the text. Um, I don't think texts are always um, guiltless. Uh, I think there are some terrible texts and uh, part of what I do is, is try to create a sense of permission to, to tackle those texts that are there. Mm. Interesting. I mean, that, that, you know, for some people, it would be just, just be a step too far to say that the texts themselves are terrible, but the way that they are used are. But um, certainly with some, it's difficult to read them in a way which doesn't come to that conclusion. That's what I think. Anyway. Okay, but, but I think as part of that, I mean, we've seen uh, figures in, uh, you know, of religious authority. I've been seeing that in the chat who've done terrible things. And I think if we feel we can critique the texts to which so much authority has been given, that also creates a space for critiquing the people who sometimes present themselves as, as representing the text or as having authority to interpret them. And so I think these things are quite uh, linked up and important mm. for us to talk about. Yeah, indeed. Um, now, you want to talk about a text that might not be on the tip of everybody's tongue, which is uh, Numbers 5. It's, it's, um, it's about a ritual which is used to judge the guilt or not of a woman suspected of adultery. So just describe the practice and then and then tell us why it's important that that we know about this text. 
Okay, so it's yes, uh, it's it's a really strange text. It is uh, in the Torah, which is uh, the most sacred part of the uh, uh, canon in, in Judaism. It's uh, the it, it purports to be the words of God transmitted to Moses. So that gives them a, a great deal of authority right at the outset. And it describes a very detailed scenario of what a man is to do if he suspects his wife has uh, committed adultery and yet there is no witness. And um, there follows uh, an immensely detailed ritual to be carried out by the priest at the tabernacle, which is the forerunner of the temple. So this very sacred place. And um, the woman's guilt initially seems to be assumed. Later on, there's a kind of opt-out, well, maybe she isn't guilty. And it describes a ritual of various offerings and of how she is positioned with her hair disheveled. So we can imagine that as you know, being, being, being physically quite exposed in this very sacred place and being given a water that um, there's, there's this sort of sense of magic here, a water that can... Uh, precipitate a curse if she is indeed guilty. And what is then described as a, a physical response, it's variously translated in really quite um, awful terms, sometimes as a, um, an, a uterus uh, expelling uh, what, what, what may be a pregnancy that may have resulted from the adultery, um, sometimes as a, a sagging thigh. So this really graphic, uh, really quite discomforting uh, marriage. And then quite shockingly, at the end of the passage, it says, uh, you know, whether the woman is guilty or not, um, as disclosed by this ritual, um, she shall bear her iniquity if she, if she has committed the sin. But the husband, the jealous husband, in any case, is, uh, is exonerated. And the reason I think this text um, deserves attention, even though it doesn't receive a lot of attention, is that uh, we hear a lot about uh, the Bible having this very clear depiction of what biblical marriage, as it's sometimes termed, is, sometimes resorting to passages like the one Holly just spoke about, Genesis 1 to 3, that's often given as a kind of really important text to tell us about marriage, yet it never men mentions marriage. Um, and here we have a text that does talk about a married couple, and it's really pretty shocking when we transport it into our environment on a number of levels. The other man, whoever he may be, with whom the woman may or may not have, or well, with whom the woman may have committed adultery, no effort is made to identify him. She is described as defiled by the action. Um, the jealousy of the husband is justified uh, and um, exonerated, whether it uh, um, has any grounds or not. Um, the miscarriage is depicted as a punishment here. Uh, conceiving seed is depicted as, you know, uh, you know, a sign of uh, of all being well, and the subtext of all of that is really very disturbing. Mm. I mean, is there any way of, of um, tracing some of the sort of traje trajectory of interpretation of that, or uh, how do we, how can we gauge the impact of something, a text like that? It's really, uh, that's that's really difficult to say. I mean, uh, it is not a text, unlike uh, the, the Genesis text that, that Holly mm -hmm. spoke about, that we see uh, received uh, in a very prominent, in a very prominent way. Um, it is, well, it's, it's read annually, as is the remainder of the Torah in, in, in Jewish context, so it's heard, so presumably it, it, it has some resonance, and it's part of a package that is 
uh, in sum, given a tremendous amount of authority. So I think that in and of itself uh, means that 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 we have a right to 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 look at it closely and and also to question it. Mm. I don't know if anyone has any questions to um, Johanna about about that. Um, not not a text that is that that we would all know, but the the recognition, I suppose. Um, I mean, I, I guess a lot of victims in a courtroom will, you know, feel that their experience. They'll just see their experience there, won't they? Um, the kind yeah. of level of exposure to which the woman is subjected, uh, you know, recalls to me the kind of way that some women uh, in in courtrooms describe as being violated all over again. Uh, so, yeah, indeed. Now, at this point, everybody, if you want to um, put in more questions, um, chat, we'll have a bit of a sort of um, free for all, really, if people want to sort of um, raise any points about what we've been talking about. Um, I, I just if I don't know if Martina Smith is willing for me to um, ask her to unmute, just say if you're not Martina, because um, I, th I think this question about where critique of the text be feels like it's a step too far why why we might need to do it what we do if the people that you're working with or you yourselves feel that the critique of the text is too far i mean what what do you do then if you think that this is a text that 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 can't actually be challenged i'd just be really interested for any thoughts on that i don't know if anybody wants to contribute to that question because it's it's obviously going to be a very pertinent one for some of the people that we're working with I, I fully agree with that and, and I feel that too, like as a Muslim woman, critiquing the text then, once you go down that kind of road, it feels like, well, then you're stripping away what's left then. Once you get to that stage, you always like to think that it's the interpretation, it's human error and it's human um, prejudice and even human desires it's true following kind of human desires of man um, that, that will want to manipulate the text to use to use it for their own uh, gain. Yeah, I just wonder whether there are some texts where it all it does some kind of violence in a way to seek to find an interpretation of them which is liberative or positive. I guess if we're speaking specifically about the Quran here, um, the reality is the Arabic, but if you know the Arabic language, first of all, most people probably don't have access to that here in the West. I mean, there are lots of people who do, but if you have access to the language, first of all, but also you have an in-depth understanding of the con context of revelation, because that's part of um, interpretation. If you haven't understood the context of revelation, then you not qualified to interpret so that i guess that's it's it's trying to protect that sacredness isn't it you don't want to seem like you're going against god but equally you've got some troublesome interpretations or meanings that have been portrayed and, and circulated in society so how do you deal with that but yeah i think from the islamic traditionist side you have actually can we ever really go back to the actual roots of interpretation is that even possible Samuel, you're saying you've got a, you've got a lot of experience of being accused of going too far in your reading of scriptures. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. When uh, we're talking about interpretations of um, consent, marriage, choice, uh, divorce, you know, for some of those, um, uh, like I said, there's so many different interpretations. So the minute you try and take a holistic approach, as as you mentioned, uh, Ramana, sorry, I, I don't want to pronounce your name wrong. <laughs> you know. Uh, one of the things I get accused of is being un-Islamic, not Islamic. I'm, I'm, I'm part of the shaitan. Uh, our education, for example, is worthless uh, because we question these things and we're engaging too much with the Western notions of Islam. Uh, also, we're adding fuel to the far right. So uh, we get removed from our jobs, political positions. It's very embedded. There's so much experience I've got so many emails, texts in the policing where, yeah, nobody wants dare talk about it because people are frightened of taking on religion per se. Suki, cool, you're applauding. Do you want to um to say something? I absolutely agree with that because being a practicing sick sick woman, I'm routinely pitted against the more liberal women in my community. But then it throws them because when I'm saying actually the faith doesn't allow this. And then what we've had is we've had women who've had to really suppress what they know is right to conform. Now, when a woman of faith comes, well, actually, you didn't need to do any of that. The scripture actually says this. I mean, it, it is the controlling of how women access scripture that really that we're starting to see unfold. Because for me, I just went to um, I went to India. I got hold of many books as I could, filled up my suitcases with them and spent years reading. But what I have seen by women in my community is they almost need a man's permission. Can I read this? Oh, you can't read this. It talks about sex. It talks about promiscuity. No, 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 no. This is forbidden scripture. And it's like, well, no, actually, if you'd have read it, it gives a balance of good men, bad men, good women, bad women, and everything in between. But you are given what we call babek buddhi, your divine internal meter of what is right and wrong. And I think each when we have these discussions, and I find this with women in my community, I think we can all around this table know that no God, because we are all worshipping one God here, there is no God that would ever condone the abuse and, and a harm to another being. So if that's the premise that we are all working on, actually our work becomes very easy. Then that's my line in the sand and that's where I start all discussions. I'd just like to go to Linda Woodhead if, I'm, if uh, she's willing, because I'm just wondering what you're finding out as your project sort of gets underway about the amount of research that is being done into abuse in different within different um, religious um, communities and the, you know the whether the use and abuse of scripture is a, is actually absolutely central to the perpetration of that abuse or whether it's it's all it's a sort of you know it's a sort of added an awful element of it well uh, it does depend, of course, on the on how important scripture is in that particular religious group or tradition. Um, uh, and abuse abuse in religious contexts is often sort of propelled by the fact that the, it's 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 the authority of the abuser which can be augmented by their religious authority and used for evil purposes. So it depends where that authority comes from. For if it's a scriptural tradition, it's more likely to be scripture, but it can be, say, in a Buddhist context, 
um, or even a mindfulness context, teachings about how you can project your consciousness into another, yeah, originally for the sake of compassion, but that can be used in a really sort of you know, to take possession of another person. So I think perpetrators are very skillful at using whatever tools are available to them. So scripture is one, um, but if that's not particularly authoritative in a particular setting, they'll, they'll use another one. I think, I think I'm, I'm boringly saying it depends all the time, aren't I, Rosie? But, it, but that really is what we are finding. And because we're talking to people in different religions, we are finding this. Yeah, no, it's, it, it actually, it's a useful reminder that within, within individual religions, as well as maybe between the religions, scriptures have a different place. And therefore, but something that's yeah. just come through the conversation, I think that we've all been having very loudly is um, you know, if somebody's in a position of saying, well, I am the authority to tell you this here and you can't, you can't question that. That's a very dangerous position. Mm. Holly, did you want to say something? Yeah, I guess also, I mean, um, we're talking about kind of contemporary positions of authority, but I suppose if I think about some of the work that I've done around Genesis 2 to 3, the thing that's so staggering to me as I look at the reception history is that the reception of that text has very clear gatekeepers that tend to be male readers and it tends to be male readers that we remember to the extent that even the possibility that women were reading or engaging with that text through history has been kind of pretty much removed it for even from you know from mainstream academic histories of that text uh, it goes without saying that there aren't any women included in it generally mm -hmm. um, and I think there's something to be said about the history of that gatekeeping as well as you know, the contemporary gatekeeping as well. It might be helpful. I mean, I'm not closing down other discussion, but I mean, it might be helpful if we could cheer ourselves up a little bit by perhaps reflecting on some of the cases where um, a reading of scripture actually is liberative. And I, I think, Rahmanara, you've had a you, you've got some um, work in this area where you say that, you know, that survivors or victims of abuse actually um, use their use their scripture to to more than survive, I guess. Yeah, so you, you alluded to this um, parallel process that was going on, this idea that in some cases, scripture and the distortion of the faith is used for that coercion and control. But equally, what I found in my research was that women were going back to their faith. So in the domestic violence cases, they were going back to their faith, but also those who had experienced abuse at the hands of those who held religious authority or in uh, faith institutions. But the end result was they were going back to their faith going back to their scripture, they were cutting out the middleman um, and they were directly communicating to God, with God, actually, what is it? What is it God's telling me? Um, and then finding in that, that actually, as, as you were saying, there's, there's no room for abuse. This idea of harming another person is probably the greatest crime within any of our faith traditions. Uh, and the moment they were able to realize that, so one of the ladies, for example, she spoke about going to the chapter specifically on divorce, and the whole ethical processes that are outlined in terms of the ethics that need to be followed when you are divorcing a person. Now, if it's so stringent in divorce in terms of respect and um, dignity of the other person, what does that mean for domestic violence in the marriage relationship? How is that even justified or recognized? Actually, that wipes away any such concept even existing. I think the other thing we need to bring into it is this idea of actually, maybe, maybe our focus needs to shift to why do people abuse? This idea of you start to understand, sorry, this is, this is my psychology hat. <laughs> um, this, this idea of understanding, what is it people are trying to get from that? 
And it is very much about maintaining that position, maintaining that authority. A lot of it is about hiding their own insecurities. And I think if we're able to try and understand it from that perspective, that will give us some insight into how then scripture is able to be perceived. Wynne uh, Bainan, I hope I pronounced your name properly. I'm not an academic, but I'm absolutely delighted to be watching what's going on here. I'm an Anglican parish priest. Uh, I chair the spirituality group in the diocese, but uh, uh, and various other things. And what I notice is that if I mention um, even the, the question of male headship, everybody looks at the floor. And the, the bad news is that whilst we're getting somewhere, certainly in a liberal diocese like this, with uh, inclusion of LGBTQI, this question, uh, people still look at the floor. Um, and um, and the bad news on top of that is, as a bloke, I'm aware that other blokes are actually drifting back towards quite populist right-wing stuff. So what you're doing is so important. So thank you for what you're doing. I'm actually thrilled that it's uh, you know across three, four um, faith, faith traditions here. So just thank you. Um, uh, and thanks for letting me be part of this because it's 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 firing it's firing me up. I can tell you. So thank you very much. Uh, well, there, there'll be more. Um, so um, just tell it. Tell us where you are geographically. Uh, I'm in Worcester Diocese uh, and uh, live in the, the West Midlands. I'm in uh, Hales Owen, actually, the great black country. Yes. Nell Hardy. Hello, everyone. I'm. I want to say thank you so much for for running this. It's been a, a fantastically helpful and actually quite uh for me as a survivor from within the church and quite cathartic um meeting to be part of um i'm currently putting together i'm a theater maker and i'm putting together a project that is partly inspired by my own experiences but also takes on uh, experiences of other uh, young religious people that i've encountered from other faiths and read about from other faiths and and i wanted to comment on the generational issue that uh, that was mentioned just recently because a lot of uh, a lot of what my play references is the kind of hostility that young people uh, coming from religious communities can feel within their kind of peer groups. I think that that a kind of polarization is starting to happen uh, in younger generations of people who really solidly stick by their family traditions and their faith communities traditions and people who really, really kind of polemically reject them uh, or who uh, who kind of conform to their family's fiercely atheist um, views of the world. So it was certainly my experience of growing up that I didn't really want to uh, reveal what was going on the bits that I didn't like about what was going on in my faith community because I didn't want all of my mates to say I told you so mm. um, and and I knew that there was that there was something really worth protecting in that community despite the fact that it was doing me so much harm and I've um, I've come across stories I'm not nearly as well placed to comment on this as plenty of other people in this in this room I'm sure but I've come across uh, stories especially of of young Muslim women and young Sikh women who kind of do break out of abusive situations they're in within their faith communities but then find the secular world quite a difficult place to exist in and and I think there are a lot of people I mean I'm I'm in my early 30s I think that there are a lot of people around 
my age group and younger who are kind of caught in that really difficult middleman mm. um i'm i'm glad to see that i'm getting a, <laughs> a thumbs up from suki there uh, but I actually think that the secular world has a lot of work to do here as well in in preventing uh, violence and abuse within faiths. And that can come from accepting that actually uh, everybody is vulnerable to spiritual abuse, whether or not you actually subscribe to a faith. I mean, we all experience it in some way just through having to conform to capitalism and all of those sorts of uh, kind of organisational structures that run the way that we live our lives, no matter what. Um, what ethical guidelines we, we we feel that we should be living by. So I think that that's um, that the role of secular culture uh, within within support for survivors is really really crucial here. Thank you very much indeed for sharing that. Um, right, I'm just going to suggest now that we close. But thank you very much, everybody. That's been another very illuminating and powerful and moving session and i i thank the um the project the uh, um abuse in religious settings project for um doing this for having these webinars for all the work they're doing it's clearly so so needed so thank you all for being with us and to rahmanara johanna and holly special thanks to you thank you